0: Well, good morning, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 14 this morning, verses 14 through 20. <clears throat> once again, that is Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. Just a few things I'd like to say before we dig into the Word this morning. It is so good uh, to be here with y'all once again. I was talking with many of you, and I've been here before I got to preach on a Wednesday night. Y'all were kind enough to invite me, and y'all were very sweet to me then, and it was very good to be, it is very good to be with y'all this morning. Y'all are very sweet people, and I'm excited to preach to the saints here at Westside today. Uh, Also, uh, Brandon Fisicreta is a friend to many of you. I talked with him on the phone yesterday, and he told me to tell you hello. However, he did say whenever I mentioned his name, y'all would just start applauding, just... uh, (laughs) unconsciously, so yeah, I'll have to talk to him later about that, but um, it is so good to be with you. Morgan and I are glad to be with you here this morning, and we're excited about what the Lord's going to do this morning. Hey. Um, so if you will, pray with me, and we'll, we'll dive into the Word. Father, we need you today. Lord, we are weak Lord, we are forgetful. God, we are tossed to and fro by the sufferings and the trials and temptations of this life, Lord. But we do celebrate today because today is the Lord's day. And we get to come gather with your people, declare your power, your glory, your ability to save. Despite all those things. So, Lord, as we open up the word this morning, I pray that you would hide me behind your word. Would you give me words to speak because I am weak. Lord, let the word go forth today. May it change hearts, Lord, to look more like the image of Christ today. And would you do this in a mighty way for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Uh, So, like I said, we're going to be in Revelation uh, chapter 14, verses 14 through 20 today. And we're going to be looking at the final harvest today, the final harvest. But before we really dive into our text today, we need to understand the gravity of the text today. In order for us to understand that gravity, we need to kind of get some background about what's going on. So we need to look at why the Apostle John is giving this book uh, to the churches Um, why God gave this to the Apostle John. And the first thing is that God gave us this book, this book of Revelation, to encourage the churches. That's right. Um, John writes to seven churches who are experiencing trials and temptations from without, but also from within. And he gives this to encourage them to endure these trials and temptations until the end. If you look at chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation you'll see John using this language. You'll see him use words like keep, conquer, do not fear, remember, be zealous, hold fast what you have, and be faithful unto death. John says, hold fast what you have, but what is he talking about there? He says John is talking about the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, which he gave to his apostles, which is now recorded for us in the Bible says, hold fast to so this, cling to this, this central message of the Bible is the gospel. The good news that the Son of God Amen. left heaven, became incarnate, made himself the refuse of the world, lived a perfect life, yes. and died on behalf of sinners like you Amen. and me, Amen. so that we could spend eternity with God. Thank you, Lord. And John specifically, as he's talking about these seven churches at the beginning of the book, he points out two, specifically talks about the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. And says, these two churches, they have endured the trials and temptations that they have faced thus far. But we have to ask ourselves, why these two churches in comparison to the other five? And John very clearly paints for us, is because these two churches, they have held fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this truth has caused them to endure despite their being attacked by the synagogue of Satan, as John says. In other words, the truth has caused these two churches to endure persecution. So I want you to keep that thought in the back of your minds this morning as we open up this text and talk through it this morning. So God or yeah, God gives this revelation to John to encourage the churches, but he also gives this revelation to warn the churches. Uh, like we've all discussed, um, John, he pointed out the good example that we have in Smyrna and Philadelphia, but he also talks about the other churches, Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Laodicea. says these churches are not enduring. Mm. And why is this? There's, they're facing trials and temptations just like the other two churches who have endured. These, these five churches who are not enduring, they are facing internal problems and these internal, internal problems are caused because they have either forgotten their first love of the gospel, right. they've traded the true gospel for a false gospel, or they have treasured worldly things instead of treasuring God through the gospel. So these five prodigal churches have this in common. They have forsaken the gospel in some form or fashion. Many of them have turned to a false gospel, a heresy. We don't know exactly what's going on in the life of the church at this point, but we do know a heresy has infiltrated the church. My church history professor says this, heresy is a much more desperate struggle than persecution. In other words, believing internal lies about God is much more deadly to the life of the church than external persecution. That's right. That's right. So think about this. The churches who are being persecuted from the outside, those are the churches that are holding fast, but those who are believing lies within the church are falling away Mm. from the faith they have in the gospel. Even churches like Laodicea, who do not necessarily believe a false gospel in creed, show in practice they have bought the lie of the world. Come on. They have believed the lie that this world, the things, the sinful things of this world, can ultimately save and satisfy. So John, he paints a picture of these churches being tossed to and fro by trials and temptations. Some are enduring, some are not, which brings us to our text for today. But even before we zoom into this text, we need to ask ourselves why John, why God gives this passage to the Apostle John for the churches and for us today. John is writing this text to remind us that Christ shall return. Christ shall return. John writes this passage to remind the churches that Christ, yes, he came the first time, but he is coming back. And I don't know about you, but as I go through this life and I struggle with sin, I try to bear faithfully what God has given me to do If if I try to be obedient It just seems that this life just goes on Mm. and on and on. And I know that I am weak. Mm. And it seems like this process of my weakness, me just bearing with this process of struggle, will just continue forever. And if we're not careful, we believe that too. We forget that this life is but a vapor. We forget that Christ shall return. Hallelujah. And when we forget that, we despair, don't we? That's right. But Christ, he gives this text to us today to remind us that this life does not go on forever. That Christ will return. And all of you today are struggling with some trial and temptation. If we're being transparent here. And if you're not today, just wait a minute. It's coming. (laughs) John writes this passage to remind us that there is an end to the struggle when Christ returns but he also writes this to remind us there are only two eternal destinies. There are only two eternal destiny, ter- two eternal destinies. John reminds us that we are either in Christ and we will get to experience eternity with God, or you are outside of Christ and will suffer the wrath of God. For all eternity. Indeed, Christ says, I was reading the Gospel of Luke with my discipleship group earlier this week, that we either sow with Christ or we scatter on, from him. That's right. Says it is one or the other. There is no purgatory, no neutral position or end to eternity. There is no law cabin outside the pearly gates of heaven. That's right, that's right. People today think I'm a good person, I've not done anything that bad, so on and so forth. Well, that's a bunch of baloney. That's right. Either you have offended God's holiness and you will suffer the punishment that's for right. your actions, right. or you have been made holy mm, by amen. Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Father. John reminds us that there are only two eternal destinies. But he also writes this to the church to get the church to think about fruit. He writes this to the church to get them to think about fruit. Now, when I say that, that he's writing to the church to get them to think about fruit, he's not talking about gardening there. Um, though, he probably had a few things to say about gardening. John is using this imagery of a garden because throughout Scripture, uh, the people of God are likened to a plant in a garden, and God is likened to the gardener. Yes, he is. And whenever we talk about this language of bearing fruit for God... In the Bible, when it talks about a person's life, it talks about what that person produces. Mm. Their actions, their words, their thoughts, and their overall lifestyle. John picks up this imagery of God and the garden of the earth in order to get us to think about the fruit that we are producing with our lives. The fruit of your life is important because you will be judged, as Revelation 22 says, based upon what you do. says... Christ will repay each one for what he has done. John, as we are about to see, he's about to describe two harvests for us. And that will give light upon how we can bear fruit in the midst of trials and temptations this morning. So will you look with me at the text this morning? Uh, This is going to be Revelation 14, starting at verse 14. And it says this, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, So, the first question we have to ask ourselves as we read this text this morning, who belongs to this first harvest that we read of in verses 14 through 16? And John's answer is, it is the righteous. The righteous of God belong to this first harvest. How do we know that this is, first harvest is a harvest of the righteous? Well, our text today is not in a vacuum. It comes on the heels of verses 12 and 13, which says this, Here is a call for the endurance of the who? The saints. And those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And it says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds following following them. John, he talks about the rest for believers that will come when Christ returns. And then he talks about the event when Christ will return for his bride, the church. And John records this for the people of God, for their faith and obedience. We also know this is a harvest of the righteous because of who does the harvesting. Verse 14 says, It is one like a son of man, and he is seated on a white cloud, wearing a crown. Think about that imagery there. How did the Lord Jesus depart from this earth right. when he ascended into heaven? Yep. He was on a cloud. Matter, that's right. And now Amen. the Bible tells us that he sits next to his father on the throne, so it only makes sense that he gets to wear the crown. Thank you, Jesus. And this title, the Son of Man, if we think about to the Gospels, what is the fav- one of the more favorite titles of Jesus for himself in the Gospels? He calls himself the Son of Man, which is far from talking about his humanity. is talking about his deity in those passages because it harkens back to Daniel 7 when it talks about one like a Son of Man approaching God the Father and who is given an eternal kingdom over all creation. This is our Lord Jesus Christ coming back for his church. And John picks up on this language to tell us that it is without a shadow of a doubt. This is the risen Jesus reigning on the throne, come to gather his flock. These people have endured, these churches, Smyrna, Philadelphia, bearing fruit to the glory of God in the midst of suffering. But that begs the question, how do we do that very thing? How do we bear fruit for God in the midst of trial and temptation? In the first few chapters of Revelation, John tells us how we do that. He gives commands like we've already mentioned here this morning. It says, repent several times in those first few chapters. He says, at the beginning of his revelation, John is exhorting the people to turn from the sin that they have fallen into. And we need to be specific here because if we're caught off guard, we won't catch the full gravity behind this command to repent. You see, John is not talking to unbelievers here. He is writing these to the seven churches scattered throughout the Mediterranean, and he's writing it to the church today. And he is essentially saying, repentance is for believers. Amen. I think too often the American church thinks that repentance is only for those who are new to the faith. Those people who have just come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have repented from their old man, have now started to walk according to the new man with Christ. And yes, that is true. Repentance is for the new believer, but it is also for the believer, him or herself. I've heard many theologians describe the Christian life as the life of repentance. But why do Christians, ones who have been declared right in Jesus Christ, why do they need to repent? While we are declared right in Christ, we will not be fully made perfect until Christ returns, like we read about here. We know this. We still struggle with sin. Until that day, there is a slow process of looking more and more like Jesus. And as we look into the perfect law of liberty, this perfect word of God, this book is described as a mirror. And the more we look into this book, we see the sin that still remains there, sins that we did not see before. And as we look into this, John says we need to repent so we can look more and more like our Savior and be prepared for when he comes. We need to repent. So John says, the Christians, believers, we need to repent. But he also says that we need to hold fast what we have received. We need to hold fast what we have received. John does this because he knows what we do and say reveals what is inside of us. Either a heart that is devoted to God, one that is holding fast to the gospel, or a heart that is resentful to God, one that is rebellious to Him and His gospel. Because it is what is inside you that determines everything about you, that determines what comes out of you. And indeed, we see this already with the churches that John specifically addresses, Smyrna and Philadelphia. They treasure the gospel of Christ, and that has produced endurance, perseverance in them. Amen. But the prodigal churches, the five churches who have thrown away the gospel. John says they have fallen into sexual morality, idolatry, and even produced death. We as Protestants, we claim to have the true gospel, don't we? And along with the reformers of the 1500s, we cry, Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our final authority for life and practice in the life of the church. But how many of us in the American church Actually, know what the scripture says. We have access to the scripture as never before. Right. It costs nothing for us in this country to gain access to a Bible. Yet, most people who sit in our own very pews are biblically illiterate. That's right. Help us, Lord. Exactly. I long for the day when I, when the church here in the States can be described as often the, the late Reverend. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was described. Uh, people would be around him, and apparently he just oozed Scripture. Um, I can't remember where I read it, but someone said if you were to poke him, the Bible would bleed out. They said his blood was biblene. Oh, that our blood would be Bibline today and in days to come. And John's command to hold fast to the Word of God is even more shocking when we recognize the context into which he is writing, which is the first century A.D. in the Roman Empire. John is saying, hold fast to this gospel, to this Word of God, in a time when home, Bibles in the home and personal Bibles were almost non-existent. And that's because it would have cost a person two or three years' wages to have a personal Bible. And yet he commands the church, hold fast to this word. And this church, this early church, they knew the Bible. It was in their hearts. They knew it by memory. While we hold, in the American church, we hold the Bible, I fear that we may not hold fast to it Mm -hmm. as the Apostle John commands us. We need to desperately cling to this word if we are to endure. So we need to hold fast to the word, but we also need to practice what we preach. We need to practice what we preach. John singles out the church at Sardis uh, earlier in this book. He says this about the church. He says, You have the reputation of being alive, but are dead. While we don't know specifically the activities of the church, why John is under the impression that this church is, has the reputation of being alive but dead, but we do know that they're not practicing what they're preaching. The church at SARS proclaimed the good and glorious things of God, but they practiced the ways of the world. They were hypocrites. And is not this charge of hypocrisy one of the more common charges brought against us today in the American church? I can't tell you, it's been more than one individual in my family, when they have turned away from following Christ, it's because of the church. They have been burned, they have been hurt by the church. So, those people, those are backbiters, those are bitter people, those are hateful people, when it simply ought not to be that way. That's right. Should the church ought not to be a people of peace, That's right. a people of compassion, yes. a people of service, just like our Savior? That's right. But how often do we look at the world instead? Would do we look like them? A people of division, bitterness, and pride. That's right. John urges the churches and us today to practice what we preach, to let our theology determine our practice. At this point, however, some may ask the question, why should I bear fruit for this God who you talk about? Why should I suffer? Why should I obey God and suffer for His glory? John answers that for us. You see, John, throughout this book of Revelation, this revelation can only take place because Christ came. That's right. Christ came to this earth. The reason we should love God by bearing fruit to his glory is because he loved us first in Christ Jesus. Jesus left the worship of angels in heaven made Himself the refuse of this world, revealed right. His perfect majesty and meekness, His perfect sovereignty and perfectly suffering for sinners. That's right. And most of all, He left the unique face-to-face communion He had with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity so that we might experience that same community with Him for all eternity. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The short and skinny of it is that God suffered for sinners. Those words do not belong in the same sentence. But that is exactly what Christ did. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, God being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he says this, We are his workmanship, Amen. created in Christ Jesus for good works. Amen. We could even say this morning that Christ shed his blood so that you would suffer well. Bear good fruit to his glory alone. We forsake all worldly comforts because Christ forsook everything to bear the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. We die to ourselves daily because Christ died to give us life. John says Christ came And as we just read a few minutes ago, Christ will return. That is why we bear fruit when we suffer. We fight for obedience to Christ, not for the sake of enduring. We don't hold on to obedience to Christ out of some white-knuckled attempt to prove to God that we can endure suffering. We don't suffer for the sake of suffering. This is the wrong thinking. We endure because Christ will return and cause us to rejoice. Yes. There is a prize of God at the end of the line, and this is the prize that Paul says he runs after. This is the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that Peter exalted in, in his epistle. That's right. Indeed, the Christian life is a life of joy. That's right. Not because this life is one of ease. Not because it is free of trials and temptations. We are actually promised those trials and temptations to Christians, aren't we? No, the Christian life is a life of joy because God says He is with you in the midst Amen. of the trial and suffering. And one day he will wipe away every tear. Thank you, Jesus. He will remove the effects of sins. He will give you a new name, a new body, and most of all, he will cause you to see his unmediated <laughs> glory. Hallelujah. The Christian life is a life of joy because it ends with seeing God face to face. Oh Christian, will you live for this today? Will you bear fruit? Will you fight for obedience Mm -hmm. so that you can dwell in his presence forevermore? Yes, Lord. John says this first harvest is the harvest of the righteous done by the Son of Man, Jesus Christ Himself. But who belongs to the second harvest? Who belongs? the second harvest. Look with me at verse 17. It says this, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. It is quite clear from our text today that this second harvest is the harvest reserved for the unrighteous. That's right. Those who reject Jesus and persist in ungodliness. That's right. Because the text says that these people will be thrown into the great winepress of the wrath of God, we have no doubt about who this text is talking about. These people bore bad fruit. They did not repent from their sin, but persisted in it. They did not hold fast to the gospel, but have turned away to a false gospel or the sinful cares of this world. These people did not practice what they preached, but played the role of the hypocrite. And now they are facing the results of their bad fruit. And the result is terrible. Will you read with me verse 20 again, because we need to feel the weight of this. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And the blood flowed from the winepress, as high as a horse's brow for 1,600 stadia. That length, 1,600 stadia, is about 184 miles. And while we don't know exactly what John is depicting here with this imagery, we do know something, that this wrath of God that will be experienced by the unrighteous is unspeakable. Indeed, if we could only hear the cries of hell for 10 seconds, I don't think it is something we could bear. Some might hear this, and even now, after we have read what is reserved for those unrighteous, some might hear this and think, is not God blowing this sin issue a little bit out of proportion? Isn't God overreacting here? And this mode of thinking causes the churches to produce all sorts of lies. Lies like, oh, God is too loving to punish anyone to hell. Hell is not real. The suffering of hell will not last for all eternity, but only for a short time. Or one that gets thrown around in our churches quite a bit. God has endless grace Mm -hmm. toward you. Yes, God is loving, and yes, His grace toward you is endless, but that is only if you are in Christ Jesus. Amen, that's right. God makes no promise to you of endless grace if you're not in His Son. His grace toward you, if you are not in Christ, has a time limit, and we have just read about it. When Christ returns, His grace will stop toward those who do not belong to Him. Bad fruit, the fruit that you produce with your life, is serious. But why is this so serious? Why is bad fruit so serious? Listen to me, my friends. God is so holy that even our loftiest thought of Him does not begin to comprehend His holiness. And He takes His holiness very seriously. Our sinfulness, it is a moral outrage to God, one which He will punish because He is a good judge. The bad fruit of our life that we produce day in and day out, it is offensive to the Lord of glory. And even as I say this, there may some still sitting in the pews here today who think that sin is no big deal, that God's glory is something to be played with. Let me read a passage from the book of Hebrews for you. In chapter 13 it says this, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So why is our bad fruit so bad? It's because it is sin. And sin is so despicable, so ungodly that it took the death of the Son of God to make it right. No merely moral person could have done this. It had to be the God-man himself. And when you continue in sin, it shows that you spit in the face of Jesus and his work on your behalf. When you persist in iniquity, it also shows that you think the holiness of God is a play toy. My friends, it is not so. God takes his holiness very seriously, and his son died To make the sinner holy. Therefore, Jesus, at the last day, He will either be your Savior or He will be your judge. So today we have looked at these two harvests that will come at the end of time when Christ will gather the righteous to Himself but will punish the unrighteous. The only question left for us today is will I endure to the harvest? Will you, church, endure to the harvest? This morning we have talked about the end of time, but if we are not careful, we will forget this. We will walk away from this service having just heard another sermon that doesn't really affect us in our day-to-day lives. But the word of God was for the church back then. And it's for us today. Amen. Just as the early church suffered trial and temptation, you will suffer this week or someday in the very near future. The question is, but what fruit will you bear when you are suffering? Will you repent from sin, hold fast the gospel, and practice what you preach? Or will you continue in sin Go after the lies of this world and play the hypocrite. Christian, God gave you this text so that when you suffer, you could remember what we just read when you suffer and are tempted by sin so that you would think about the unspeakable horrors of hell that await for those who turn away from Christ. You do not want that for yourself or for anyone that you know. And God gave us this passage to remind you of the awesome joys that will come when we get to be with our Savior forevermore. John gives this text so that we would endure bearing joyful, obedient fruit to God's glory. So Christian, this morning, I implore you, yes. persevere. Because while trial, while trial and temptation do endure, the presence of God is more. Throughout the New Testament, it repeatedly talks about how for the joy that was set before Christ, he endured the cross. Christ endured so that you would endure and get to experience that same joy. Amen. Christ came to make that joy a reality to you. And he gives you this promise that he's coming back to help you persevere until the end. He says he's coming soon. Will you pray with me, church? Father, we know who we are. God, we know that we are fragile beings, that we often forget that Christ came, that we often forget that he is coming back. Lord, we know that when we suffer, Lord, that we often turn away, God, from you, that we go after false truths about you, that we turn to the things of this world, God. We know that we are weak creatures. But God, we know our Creator as well. God, we know that you are abundantly able to save us to the uttermost. You prove your love for us in sending your Son to die for us. And we'll one day fully display that when he comes back. God, I pray, Lord, that myself, that this church, Lord, that we would remember those things, that we would look back to the text like we have read this morning when we read about the end of time, when we get to see you face to face. God, would you cause us to endure faithfully, being obedient to you, God, in the midst of suffering, because you're with us, and you will come for us soon. Would you do these things and more to your glory alone? In Jesus' name, amen.